Amen. Hey, that's right. We are in our study, World Religions, Cults, and the Occult, number 10, Bobby. Seventh-day Adventist, you are right. And uh, as you turn there in your workbooks to that uh, section there, we've been uh, already seeing the history of them. It starts with this guy who set some dates, William Miller. We'll see again, Lord willing, tonight. At least he admitted he was wrong, but mm, they just had to keep it going. It spawned a whole bunch of cults, not only uh, a bunch of them, but it's specifically the ones we're on is Seventh-day Adventists came out of this date-setting movement. Started with the three big guns, so to speak, Mr. Bates, Mr. James White, who married Ellen Harmon, who obviously when you get married, what happens? Your life is transformed. You have more joy than you can contain. Right, honey? Sure. Yeah, and she was so confident about that, as you can tell. Uh, but Ellen G. White, okay, obviously with that, and that's what we dealt with a couple of weeks now. So we're saying, Colt, Colt, boy, that's a pretty strong uh, uh, phrase to use that, and we saw before, this is, man, they, they, the average Seventh-day Adventist, oh, don't you dare say, oh, how could you, well, hey, folks, we've been taking a look at the a secular and biblical proof of what defines a cult, right? We've already seen last time their source of authority is wrong. What's our source of authority? What's the Christian source of authority? It's the Bible and nothing. It's the Bible and that's it, period, okay? That's the problem with the cults. It's always they say the Bible, but it's not really the Bible. It's the Bible and Bible or Bible, but that's a sign you're in a cult. You're outside the source of authority. Now, when you get the source of authority wrong, what happens? Spills downhill, and that's what we saw. Now you got God and the Trinity messed up, and that's what we saw with Seventh-day Adventists as well. And, of course, Jesus Christ is what we left off last time. Not only just denying his deity, but saying that he's the Archangel Michael, the same thing that Jehovah's Witnesses do. Why do you see that similarity? Because we saw before, guess who came out of the Seventh-day Adventists? The Jehovah's Witnesses when you take a look at that well. So it's two peas in the pod on that aspect. Now, we're going to take a look at the fourth aspect. How do we know you're involved in the cult? Well, they also get wrong because they got the nature, the source of authority wrong, is the nature of man, okay? And that's where we're at in our workbook there. The SDA stands for? Seventh Adventist. You guys are on the ball tonight, right? Mostly agrees with historical uh, biblical Christianity. And I, again, we, we deviated from the author last week. Remember, he said, I, I respectfully but strongly disagree with some of his things. Maybe he wasn't available to some information there. I'll give him some credit there. But he says, mostly agrees. I don't even know if I would even use mostly. Okay, there are some similarities, but... Okay, but anyway, he says, agrees with historical biblical Christianity on the nature of man. They teach that the universe was created in six literal days. They say people are created in God's image and likeness. They say people fell into sin by their own choice and now share a fallen nature and its consequences. However, key word, underline that, put asterisks around it, rocket ships, whatever, draw attention to that word. However, okay, the SDA believes in soul sleep, right? Soul sleep. Okay, and denies the immortality of the soul, right? We saw before, we're going to see it again tonight, that they say they deny the doctrine of the eternality of hell, right? That if uh, those who end up there, it just poof, you, you annihilate. We'll hit that again tonight. But soul sleep, right? And we're going to hit that uh, in a little bit. Now, and what we will see is the reason why they came up with soul sleep was to cover another false teaching, Remember what we saw, and we're going to get into this in great detail tonight. Tonight's the night. We keep talking about it. We get into their thing called the investigative judgment. The investigative judgment, okay, which basically that was their excuse by not having to admit, even though their founder did, William Miller, that they got it wrong on the date setting, right, on the 1844 issue. Rather than admit that they're wrong, they came up with this false teaching. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus really did do something on that date. He just moved in the sanctuary. Remember that? Okay, well, then they say, based on that, he is now judging people, right, based on their behavior, which now you're denying what? The cross, we're going to get into that in great detail, right? So that's why they came up with this secondary false teaching called soul sleep, okay, soul sleep, because wait a second, if the, the, if the judgment, this investigative judgment that's supposed to determine your eternal destiny, do you make it to heaven, do you go to hell, and it's based on your works, not the work of Christ, well, wait a second, he, that's still in the future, so you can't have people saying we went to heaven or whatever, so what do they do? They're taking a big nap. They're just in this until that day, and then they get resurrected, and then it gets decided. So it's a lie within a lie, and that's what happens when you lie, guess what? Turns into another one, turns into, you know, oh, wait a second, well, that contradicts, so we've got to come up with something to cover that, and blah, blah, blah. So that's what we're going to see again tonight. The SDA teaches that people who have died are in an unconscious, sleep-like, okay, State, okay? Now, trust me, if soul sleep were true, there's certain Sunday mornings that I would be 
tempted to go for that. But I'm not going to do it because the Bible doesn't teach it. No, <laughs> it sounds like, oh, weren't you guys in soul sleep? But no, it's a sleep-like state is what they say. Believers are awaiting the appearance of Christ when they will be resurrected and caught up to meet the Lord. That's what they believe, right? So you just, you die, you take this giant cosmic nap until this future false teaching, the investigative judgment, then it gets determined, right? That's why you can't have them going to one place yet. So they created this limbo thing where you sleep, soul sleep, right? right? Now, the unrighteous wicked will be resurrected and judged after the millennium, okay? The SDA, the third paragraph in that section says, teaches that after Christ's thousand-year rule, the millennial kingdom, a second resurrection of those not saved will occur. Those whose names are not found in the book of life, the unsaved, will be cast into the lake of fire. And what's the word there? Annihilated. Is that what the scripture teaches? You go to hell and you poof. No, we're going to see that again tonight. Out of existence, that's what they did. They deny the doctrine of eternal hell. Who also does that? Jehovah's Witnesses. You get two peas in the pond. They came out of the same source when you do the investigation. So let's take a look at that soul sleep and once again this uh, false teaching of that and the false teaching of annihilationism when it comes to hell. Soul sleep, of course, as we just read, is a belief that after a person dies, his or her soul sleeps until this supposed final judgment, their version of judgment called the investigative judgment. The concept of soul sleep is not biblical. Now, here's what they do. This is what cults do. They take things out of context. They take a word and they twist the meaning of it. Or as we're going to see again tonight, their version of the Bible called the clear word version, they completely change what the actual text says to fit their false teaching. Again, the exact same practice that the Jehovah's Witnesses do with their perversion uh, called the New World Translation. Okay, But let's take a look. Does the, what they do is they do this. They take the word and then the Bible does have this word in there. Sleep. Right? And it is used in reference when people die. But then they say, oh no, I say literal cosmic nap. So let's begin to take a look at some of those uh, passages and, and show that that is not true. Luke chapter 8 is your first one. Luke chapter 8. And uh, if you find Luke, what do you do? Go to chapter 8. Man, you guys are sharp tonight. Luke chapter 8, that's right. Luke chapter 2. And uh, let's start with verse 49. Grab the context of what's going on here. Luke chapter 8, 49 says, Now while Jesus was speaking, uh, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and your daughter is taking a big giant nap. Oh, I'm sorry, what's the context here? She's dead, right? So we're dealing with somebody died, right? All right, so your daughter is dead. He says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Why wouldn't you bother? Because they think she's dead because she is dead. But they don't realize that Jesus has the power to bring you back from the dead. Right? Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. Now when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but what? Asleep. So what's he using? He's using a euphemism. When, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but have you ever gone to a funeral? Right? Have you ever looked into the cassock there? Right? And that person is so active... They're just moving around, fidgeted. No, that's a sign they're not dead. Okay, okay. No, they're what? It looks like they're sleeping. It's just a euphemism the Bible uses, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says they, they laughed at him, right? Knowing that she was dead. What's the whole context? How many times is it got to say? She's dead, she's dead, she's dead, she's dead, right? But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit, what returned? Right? Why did it return? Because she was dead right how many guys can agree that when your spirit's gone you're in trouble <laughs> yeah, right, okay return to her right and my child get up her spirit returned and at once she stood up let's take a look at another one first corinthians 15 flip on over to that one all right first corinthians 15 bobby three for three tonight if you find second corinthians what do you do take a lap that's right first corinthians 15 uh let's start with verse three right Here's what Paul says, For I received what it passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What, what, what's the word there? D -d -d he died, right, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, right, at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Notice what this is juxtaposed to. Still living, meaning you're a live though some have what fallen asleep in other words they what they're dead 
That's all it means. It's just a euphemism, right? All right, let's take a look at another one. Uh, the rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. All right, let's go flip on over there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and uh, starting with verse 13, or actually, yeah, 13. <clears throat> right, and this one, I'm assuming we all know this, the order, right? Those who have already died as Christians, we're not going to precede them, right? They get their resurrected bodies first. We're hard on their heels. Those who are still alive, right? Right, well, that's the same word that's used here. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant, Paul says, about those who what? Fall asleep. What's he talking about? Those who have died. And they're not just taking a nap. Or to grieve like the rest of men. Now, again, why would you grieve if they're just taking a nap? They're dead, right? All right. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are what? What's it juxtaposed with? We who are still alive and who are left at the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have what? Fallen asleep or died. All it is when the Bible uses the word sleep in this context, it's just a euphemism. It's another word for somebody died. Why? Because when a person's dead, it looks like they have fallen asleep. That's all that it means, okay? It just describes that. The moment we die, though, to add more to this, the Bible clearly says, and we've quoted this so many times in our previous studies, especially on the false teaching of reincarnation, you don't come back. It didn't say you need to be born again and again and again. It was one time there. Hebrews 9.27. I'm not going to turn there. Hebrews 9.27 says what? Is appointed man once to die, then what? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't say that. Uh, then face judgment. Now, the judgment that's being used there certainly has nothing to do with their version. It's the bame of judgment for the Christian, right, when the, the rewards are given out of that. But when you die, what happens? There you go. Okay, you're, you're not taking a, a big giant nap. For believers to be absent from the body is to be what? In fact, let's turn to that one. That one is in 2 Corinthians 5, right? Let's do some page flipping tonight. 2 Corinthians 5, and that one's pretty sure. So just to reiterate, number one, when the Bible uses sleep in regards to people uh, being dead, that's all it is. It's just a euphemism, another way of saying they're dead, right? But we also know that you don't take a nap when you die as a Christian. Second Corinthians, let's take a look there, uh, and uh, 5, uh, let's grab 6. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, still alive, we're what? We're away from the Lord. Why are we away from the Lord? Because we're here on earth, he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, Right? Okay, but we live by faith, not by sight. Now, we're confident, I say, I would prefer to be away from the body because that's when I get to take a big, giant nap. And then later, I'll find out whether or not I made it to heaven or not, or hell, all depending on my works. I'm sorry, wrong translation. What? It says when we're away from the body, when you, in other words, die, what happens? Bang, you're at home with the Lord. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body, alive, or away from it, dead. For we must all appear before the, what? Judgment seat of Christ, the Bayman judgment says it again, just like Paul just said in First Thessalonians four. Same thing. You don't take a nap, right? Right. And so, in that each one may receive what is due him for the things while in the body, good or bad. Let me just give you one more, and we'll move on. Philippians chapter one, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter one. Let's take a look there, starting with verse twenty-one. Paul says this. Now, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand... Um, wait a second. No, that's 27. Hey, how about those glasses? For to me, to live is Christ, right? And to die is to take a big giant nap. No, you got to what? You're gonna, it's to gain, right? It's to gain. Well, right? Why is it to gain? Because when we die, we go to heaven, we get to be with Jesus, get to experience, experience all that. And that's what he says. He says, in fact, if I go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor to me, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart, die, and be with Christ, which is what? Better by far. How can he say it's better by far when, according to them, you don't even know yet? You don't even know if you're going to get there. He was confident that when he's going to be here, he's going to be with Christ. He gets to receive the reward. He gets to be a part of heaven, Right? So clearly the Bible doesn't teach soul sleep, period. Even the passages, they want to cherry pick and say, oh no, it's a literal cosmic nap. That's not even what it's talking about. And number two, we just saw the repeated scriptures say, listen, no, you don't sleep when you die, right? You go straight to heaven or you go straight to hell, right? And the only thing that keeps you from going to hell is Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, not your works 
as they would say. Now, also, let me give you a couple more. Jesus' own words contradict soul sleep when he spoke to the thief on the cross. What did he say to the thief on the cross? Luke 23, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, today you will be taking a big giant nap. And then one of these days, based on your works, I don't know what I'm doing on this cross, okay, because apparently you've got to finish the job. That's really what they teach, as blasphemous as that is. Okay? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Not sleep. That's Jesus' own words. Let me give you one more. Jesus' transfiguration, Matthew 17, right? What do we have going on there? Jesus is there. He does the transfiguration before Peter, James, and John. All of a sudden, a couple people pop onto the scene. Who's that? Moses and Elijah. Well, wait a second. Here's the obvious problem with soul sleep, right? Uh, how in the world could Moses, who died centuries before this time, be appearing when he's supposed to be sleeping? Let alone Elijah, right? Because we're going to see with their investigative judgment, I kid you not, they say that Jesus uh, hasn't begun this investigative judgment until 1844, and starting around that point, then he started with Adam and Eve, okay, he starts with Adam and Eve, and he's still working on it. Because he's got to judge him. You know, it takes a while. It, well, if that's the case, then how was it that 2,000 years, roughly, 1,800 some years, uh, from this point, was Moses and Elijah? How, how come they got to bust out of the nap? The judgment hadn't even started yet, according to them. The whole thing falls apart, what, if you stick with the Bible? And that's, unfortunately, what these guys uh, don't do. In fact, let me give you an example of, okay, because you're, you're going like, well, how do you preach soul sleep? Because that ain't even close. We saw, we're just reading Bible tonight, right? Well, because their Bible, again, as we saw last week, they don't, it's not a, a translation, it's a perversion, just like the New World uh, uh, Translation, Jehovah's Witness. It's a hack job. And they literally hack the Scripture to fit their false doctrines, right? Let me give you an example. Luke 23, the thief on the cross. Here's what the Bible says. And he said unto him, uh, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You know what they twisted that in their version? It reads this way. Jesus turned his head toward him and said, I promise you today, when I return with the glory of my Father, I will take you home with me to paradise. It didn't say that at all. Right? So is their Bible, the so-called clear word Bible, the only thing clear about the clear word Bible is it's a perversion. It's a hack job, again, just like the Jehovah's Witness. Okay, that's a completely twisting. And why did they do that? Because they had to create a lie so they wouldn't have to admit they were wrong and it created another problem so they created another lie and invented another false doctrine and on and on it goes. Okay, let me give you one more example. Revelation 20, verse 4. Uh, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, right? And they changed it to, I saw those who had been beheaded. They don't want to say souls, giving the impression that these people are cognizant instead of taking a nap, right? That's their version of the so-called Bible. So again, their Bible is not our Bible. Not only do you not follow the Bible, but your so-called version of the Bible is a hack job on somebody that you follow outside the Bible called Ellen G. White. That's why everything's messed up uh, as we see there, okay? Soul sleep. Now, uh, again, when a person uh, dies, you're either going straight to heaven or you're going straight to hell, and it's based only on the work of Jesus Christ, right, period. And again, this is what Seventh-day Adventists, the soul sleep, they're promoters of that, and uh, the, uh, also Jehovah's Witnesses, right? So let's continue on. Uh, the issue of hell, or what's called, we saw before, was annihilation, annihilation, and basically, is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. Of course not. Okay. And that's the belief that people will not be suffering for all eternity. Okay. Uh, you're just going to basically go poof. Right. And they say that basically that really helps Christianity out because that really softens the blow as to why. I mean, that's just too harsh for God, you know, to to have somebody. I mean, they might be alive for 70 some years and then the forever they're going to be in torment. Only an eternal punishment can suffice for the sins committed against an eternal God. And by the way, God makes the rules, right? Who are you to tell God what to do and how to judge? Oh, by the way, the fact that he even made a way out, he didn't just make a way out. He did all the work. All you got to do is receive it. And you still rejected it. You sent yourself to hell. You didn't have to go there. And that's why Christ talks about it so much because people don't have to go there. It's real, but he made a way out, okay? But they say, oh, no, this really helps, you know, because that's just horrible. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible teaches, and we're going to see that, 
Okay? Uh, annihilationists, they also would say, well, wait a second, they're cast into the lake of fire. And we all know that if a person's stuck in a fire, let alone for eternity, they're just going to go poof. No. When you read the scripture, uh, you see that obviously that we not only get a new body that is prepared for all eternity to enjoy heaven, what does the lost get? They get a body that's prepared for eternal judgment in hell. And apparently, that body will not be consumed in the fire, but it will experience the pain, unfortunately, of being in a fire. But it will not be consumed. Okay, that's what this scripture teaches. Then we also saw before, and I'm not going to belabor this because we hit this already a couple times, but since it's here, I want to hit it one more time. Revelation 20, we saw how it speaks of Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire, and it clearly says there that they will be what? Day and night tormented, how long? Forever and ever. They didn't go poof. And we also saw that the wind did, that's when Satan gets chucked in. It says that's when the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are in there. When did they go in there? Right? This passage is dealing at the end of the millennial kingdom the, of Antichrist and the false prophet went in there prior to the millennial kingdom. So after a thousand years, they're still in there, still what? Suffering. And then the Bible, on top of that, timing aspect, said forever and ever. How long is forever and ever? It just, how do you get around this? And then Jesus, we saw before, Matthew 25 says, he talks about the two destinies, right? Then they, the unsaved, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, we don't even sneeze at this one. That's in the same verse. It's not two chapters later. They say, oh, that's not what it means in the context. It's the exact same verse. Only a couple words separate. How long is eternal life? Forever. When we go to heaven, praise God, we don't get kicked out. Anybody glad besides me? Yeah, praise God. We get there and we get to stay there. Woo! We ain't coming back. It lasts forever. Nobody sneezes that. Heaven lasts forever. The exact same verse says, guess what? So does hell. Eternal life, eternal punishment. Right? So again, you're just denying what the scriptures are saying, okay? But that's what they want to do. And by the way, hell is perhaps one of the primary reasons why God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. What did we see before? God is not willing that any should perish. He sent his son Jesus to rescue us from this place. We also see in Matthew 25, hell was originally created for the devil and the demons. But since mankind has rebelled like the devil and the demons, and even on top of having a way out, the demons and the devil, their fate is sealed. But mankind's not. And all you got to do is accept the gift of what Christ has done. He's done it all. And if you still don't want it than that, then guess what? Then to hell you will go. Right? You continued to rebel just like the demons and the devil, and you chose the road that you went down. All right? We place our faith in Jesus. We are saved, forgiven, cleansed, and promised of an eternal home in heaven. That's why Jesus went on the cross. It was not a life enhancement. It wasn't to help you in a poor economic existence. It wasn't just to make sure that you can have a mansion and a Cadillac, as a bunch of other false teachers say. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ came to save us from hell. Now, that just used to be the old-fashioned gospel. That's what the Bible says. And that's what we should be excited about. But think about it. Annihilationism takes away the sting of the unsaved from the urgency to get saved now. Well, what do I got to worry about? I'll just go poof. The evolutionists, the atheists, what do they say? I don't need to listen to you. You're just trying to scare me with all that hell talk because we all know we came from the dirt and when we die, I just cease to exist. We go back to the dirt. It's the same bravado, right, that annihilationism teaches. It's still different than the atheist. You just cease to be, okay? It takes away the sting of the reality. No, you better get saved. You better get saved now, okay? And that's another unfortunate thing. But that's what they see there with that. Now, you're sitting there going like, well, where in the world did she get all this? Now, this is where we left off last time. This was her... Two-hour vision. Remember, she had all these visions and she got hit in the head with a rock and went into a coma and all this weird stuff. It's on historical record, right? She had that two-hour vision at a funeral. Remember that one? Which is kind of odd, okay? And remember that she, her, her so-called great work called the Great Controversy. That's what we left off with last time. This is where the bulk, not all of it, this is where the bulk of their false teachings come from because she had a vision. No, you should have stuck with the Bible. Right, first of all, you should, should admit you were wrong and repenting got right, like your founder did. But nope, 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 got to keep it going. Right? But this is a vision. Now, 
let me just give you a smattering of what supposedly came out of this vision. And some of it you're going to see is this investigative judgment thing. We're going to get into that, right? But this is, if you were here last week, we ended on, she had this two-hour vision, right, called the Great Controversy, which became that work, right, in 1858. And here's what the thing, I'm going to give you a synopsis of it. That supposedly, according to her, God told her at this vision that lasted supposedly two hours at a funeral, that before time began, God the Father exalted Jesus to be equal to himself. Jesus is God. God the Son, he's always been God. The eternality of the Trinity. So you got that wrong. So right there, as soon as that came into your brain, you said, hey, this ain't from God, it's a demon, run. First of all, you're outside the scriptures, so don't put your hope in a vision. Now, then she says, when Adam and Eve sinned, the Father took Jesus into his inner council and allowed him to become the sacrifice for sin. What's the Bible say? Before the foundations of the world, that's when uh, Christ, the plan, was. it wasn't, uh, oh, oh, I, I don't know what's going on here. They sinned. I guess I better come up with a plan. That's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what she says, this vision. God's exaltation of Jesus over Lucifer made Lucifer jealous. So Lucifer rebelled. This is starting to sound like Mormonism, isn't it? As we saw before. Come out of the same root, remember? Okay, so that's why you see the similarities. Uh, and it almost kind of gives Satan like he's a good guy, right? And he said, so Satan accused then God of unfairness, of giving a law too difficult to keep, yet demanding obedience. Come on. Yeah, say, are you serious? You're trying to get like... Then they say, listen, Jesus... And this is all in the supposed vision when you get a bunch of this baloney. Jesus came with sinful flesh like Mary's to show us we can keep the laws he did. Can we keep the law? No, we'll get to that hopefully if I get that far. Not at all, right? But Jesus had sinful... If Jesus had a sin nature, he would have sinned, which means what? He'd still be in the grave, which means we're doomed, Right? He's the sinless sacrifice, right? So that's what she said. Ultimately, God's people will become free of sin and prove God's law is fair and attainable. And when God's law, people, listen, perfectly reproduce the character of Christ. Wait a second, if I could do that, then why do I need Christ? This is crazy. Then they will, at that point, vindicate God's character, prove Satan to be a liar, and thus, listen, help Jesus win the conflict with Satan. So now it's on our shoulders. That's a big job. He, yeah, we're in big trouble. That's right. Okay. Uh, then, listen, Jesus will place all confessed sins on Satan who will carry them into the lake of fire where he, Satan, will, quote, bear the final penalty for them. So Satan becomes our sin bearer, according to Seventh-day Adventism. And this is all in this two-hour vision, amongst other so-called visions at a funeral. Wow. Then finally, God's people have the power to hasten the Lord's return. Guess how? This is what cults always do. You want to bring back the second coming of Jesus Christ? You want to bring paradise to this earth? What do you got to do? You do what this cult says to do. That's right. That's the answer. We're the answer. We're the remnant, right? And that's what they say. By throwing themselves into carrying the Adventist message to the world and keeping the law perfectly. Well, guess what? He ain't coming back then. (laughs) Because we can't keep the law. It's crazy, right? Then also... The mark demarcating who's the saved and who's lost is how? Based on the profession of faith in Jesus Christ? Are those who reject him? No. By the observance of the seventh day Sabbath. You have to worship on, if you worship on Saturday, you're saved. If you don't, you're not only not saved, while worshiping on Sunday is now the mark of the beast. Right? And they would come to your door and say, oh, we're Christian just like you. No, you're not. You teach a false gospel. You don't even follow the Bible. Your Bible is perverted. You follow this lady that had visions. You hack your so-called version of the Bible to fit these false teachings. And you admit in your own teaching that I'm not saved just because I worship on Sunday. And we're supposed to be brothers in Christ? I don't think so. It's not at all. So let's take a look at their investigative judgment. This is at the core. And they even admit, we're going to see Ellen White says, the core thing of Seventh-day Adventism is this false teaching called the investigative judgment and that you have to believe this or you can't even go to heaven. But this is their version of so-called getting to heaven. You tell me if this is not 100% works-based just like the Mormons, just like Jehovah's Witnesses. But let's take a look at that. The investigative judgment doctrine 
that Seventh-day Adventists still cling to came from a reinterpretation of William Miller's failed prophecy that Christ would come to the earth on October 22, 1844. At first, Adventists believed the door of mercy was shut on that date. Ellen G. White, with prophetic authority, supported both this date and the shut door belief. Her first vision contained a fearful judgment on Adventists who had given up the 1844 message called the Midnight Cry. She said they had fallen off the path to heaven. Ellen White just could not accept the fact that Christ did not return in 1843 or 1844. She could not admit her mistake. Interestingly enough, William Miller did. Instead, she claimed she had a vision from God, the first of many. Ellen Harmon claimed that God was the one who had made the mistake and had covered it up himself. Ellen's controversial vision forced the readjustment of many Adventist dates and doctrines, even though the 1843 date had now been adjusted to 1844, it was still in air. Nevertheless, the 1844 date became the foundation for many Central Adventist doctrines and beliefs, which continue to be held to this day. An explanation for the 1844 disappointment had to be found. Two Millerites, Hiram Edson and Mr. Crozier, introduced a new sanctuary theology which taught that instead of Christ coming visibly to earth in 1844, he entered for the first time the most holy place in heaven. This new teaching gave them a way out of their dilemma without actually admitting their error. Ellen G. White immediately put God's endorsement on this new explanation for the date October 22, 1844. All doctrines were soon adjusted to fit 1844 as the cleansing of the sanctuary and the beginning of the investigative judgment. The shut door had to be opened to allow salvation for their own children who had been born after 1844 and to evangelize others into Adventism. Salvation for everyone, even those who lived in Bible times, had to be conditional on this judgment and so soul sleep was introduced. The prophecies of Daniel and Revelation had to be reinterpreted to fit the investigative judgment. It was a time of turmoil and doctrinal reversal, but the investigative judgment doctrine survived with Ellen White's stamp of approval. At the time appointed for the judgment, the close of the 2300 days in 1844, began the work of investigation and blotting out of sins. All who have ever taken upon themselves the name of Christ must pass its searching scrutiny. The terms of this new investigative judgment doctrine, or sanctuary doctrine as it came to be known, were harsh. It taught that a recording angel now kept track of every move, even to the extent of recording wasted moments where one might want some leisure time. Every man's work passes in review before God and is registered for faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Opposite each name in the books of heaven is entered with terrible exactness, every wrong word, every selfish act, every unfulfilled duty, and every secret sin with every artful dissembling. Heaven sent warnings or reproofs, neglected, wasted moments, unimproved opportunities, the influence exerted for good or evil, with its far-reaching results, all are chronicled by the recording angel. Truly this doctrine of investigated judgment, unique to Seventh-day Adventists, has colored every other doctrine in the movement. There has been much controversy and debate since it cannot be supported from the scriptures. In his book, Movement of Destiny, noted Adventist historian and theologian Leroy Froome states that any weakening or denial or submerging of the sanctuary truth is not only a serious but a crucial matter. Any deviation or dereliction therefrom strikes at the heart of Adventism and challenges its very integrity. This central Adventist doctrine, which states that the judgment of believers' works will determine their salvation, is blatantly unbiblical and is not taught by any legitimate Christian denomination. 
This doctrine teaches at some point in time between 1844 and the second coming of Christ, every believer's name will come up in judgment. At that point in time, if one has any unconfessed sins, even forgotten sins, or if one does not demonstrate perfect obedience to the Ten Commandments, especially the fourth, he will be lost. This teaching is diametrically opposed to the New Testament gospel of grace. Now do you see why they lied to Dr. Walter Martin? <laughs> yeah, not even close. It is clear, and this is at the core. Notice the guy that they quoted in that book there basically says, this is at the core of Seventh-day Adventists. You've got to believe this. You've got to believe what? You've got to believe that how you get to heaven is based on what? Your works. Everything is being recorded. That's their words not mine. So that leads us to, well, how do you know you're involved in a cult? Well, the fifth one they also get wrong, as you just saw, all based around this lie called the investigative judgment. You get salvation wrong, right? And they certainly get it wrong. Let's take a look now at that section there, investigative judgment. According to the SDA theology, okay, well, before that, we get to the remnant church. The SDA church teaches that Christianity in its original form was corrupted in the centuries after the New Testament era by the apostate Roman Catholic popes, right? And they want to say that that's why people, unfortunately, worship on Sunday. We'll probably have to get to that part next week. Uh, because that was a conspiracy done by either Constantine and the Roman Catholic Church. No, it's not. It's because the Bible says so. So you can skip that whole historical thing. That's not where we get it from, but we'll get that later. But they say that that's, they're the remnant there because of this. The sign of this apostasy was the shifting of the Sabbath day from the seventh to the first day of the week, to Sunday. Throughout history, a small, faithful group of Christians has maintained true worship, and the Seventh-day Adventist believes that it is the remnant church. There it is again, the remnant church. So basically, again, this is your premise. Nobody was a real Christian until when? 1844 came along, and uh, you arrived on the scene shortly thereafter. Got a hard time buying into that, right? But that's basically what they're saying, right? Nobody knew the truth. Everybody was duped until we arrived on the scene. However, the Bible teaches that the church is a total group of individuals who place their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. When born again, these individuals are immediately placed by the claim and uh, the Holy Spirit into one spiritual body. Right? Did you know that there's no denominations in heaven? Right? When you're a born-again Christian, you're a born-again Christian. Just as much as any born-again Christian in the other world. And not only that, throughout all the history, and that's what he says there, the, the no single organization can claim exclusive title as the true or remnant church because the church, by definition, the Bible, includes all the redeemed of all ages. And it certainly didn't happen until 1844. It's wild. It's completely outside the Scripture. Now, let's get into that investigative judgment thing. According to the SDA theology, beginning in, as you saw in the video, October 22, 1844, Christ entered upon the judgment phase of his ministry whereby... He blots out sin. So wait a second. So you mean that there was no attempt, there was nothing going on with the removal of our sins until 1844, specifically October 22nd. That's not what the Bible says, and we've already dealt with this before. The Psalms 1 and 3 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he what removed our transgressions from us. Okay, And this is what Satan wants to do. Satan always wants us to think that God hasn't forgiven us. God can't forgive us. We saw that last Sunday in the sermon, the second half part, right? That somehow that God can't forgive. No, that's what he always wants you to do. He always wants you in bondage. He wants you to think that somehow God can't forgive you of that one, or maybe he hasn't forgiven this one, or it's up to me, like I got to remember every single one. And you come up with all those hypothetical situations like, well, what if I was driving down the road and I just yelled at somebody and sinned, I crashed and died. Oh, it's good. It's all already taken care of. It's all good. And when did we see previously, when are our sins taken care of? On the cross. It wasn't until, oops, I'm sorry. Uh, that just got it kind of kick-started. It really didn't start to engage until 1844. Show me the verse. But guess what? If you probably flip through the Clear Word Bible, <laughs> it might give that illusion, right? Uh, with that. But anyway, that's what they uh, believe. But the Bible says that God not only forgives us our sins, and that happened on the cross of Christ, not in 1844. And it's, even then, they're saying it's still not done. That's just beginning the investigative judgment. Right? But then, 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful and just to put us into soul sleep after we die, and then only then will you really find out. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong translation. He will forgive us of our sins and purify us and cleanse us from all well if all my unrighteousness is forgiven and cleansed out then what am i worried about it's already done 
But this is what they uh, teach, right? And, uh, but anyway, let's, let's continue on. So that's what they say, the remnant church. However, the Bible teaches that the church, uh, again, is not a remnant, it's universal, and that, of course, Christ took care of our sins, not in 1844, began the process, it was done on the cross. But here's what they say. When Christ, by virtue of his own blood, removes the sin of his people from the heavenly sanctuary at the close of his ministration, he will place them on Satan, who in the execution of the judgment must bear the final penalty. So they're saying that this is stacking up. Our sins are stacking up in heaven. And then based on our works, then whether or not it gets placed on Satan who bears. That's so messed up on a multitude of levels. Where do you go with that? But again, that's what we've been seeing. Now, they also teach about this with the investigative judgment. Christ moved from the holy place to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary on October 22nd, 1844 and began a new phase of his ministry, which supposedly foreshadowed the Levitical Day of Atonement. Now, again, why did they come up with that baloney? Because they set a date for Christ's return, got it wrong once, got it wrong twice, got it wrong three times. The founder admitted, William Miller, I was wrong. He spent the last five years of his life before he died trying to rope people back in. I was wrong. Please, please, please come back. I was wrong. But they, no, we want to keep it going. That's why we have so many cults spinning off from the Millerite movement. And one of those was the Seventh-day Adventists. So they didn't want to admit that they were wrong. So what did they do? Okay, so Jesus did do something. He just didn't come back to the earth. He just moved in the sanctuary. That's what they teach. To begin this investigative judgment that's based on your works. And yet you're somehow a Christian? I'm sorry. Okay, let's go on. They say the first phase of the Day of Atonement is called the cleansing of the sanctuary. It involves a pre-advent investigation and judging of God's people. Notice God's people. Us. To determine whose sins will be removed from the sanctuary. No, no, who, who determines whether we get our sins forgiven? Christ and his work, and we place our faith in that, right? Uh, Christ started this judgment when they say, not on the cross, in 1844, and guess who? He had to start at the beginning. He started with Adam and Eve, and begun the pro, uh, uh, progressing through the ages, judging all of the dead believers. Now, at some point near the end of time, Christ will begin judging the living believers. You know, because that's a lot of things to go through. You know, one at a time, man, you're going to go in there and you're going to... Crazy, 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 right? During this investigative judgment, listen, either God either blots out the sins of the who? Believers. So again, it's all based on this investigative judgment, based on your works. Or he removes the name of the, not the lost, he removes the name of the believer from the book of life. Does the Bible say that God will blot out our name? from? No. In fact, he says exactly the opposite. First of all, Isaiah 43 says this, that God forgives and forgets our sins. Isaiah 43 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, not based on your behavior, and I will remember your sins no more. Period. Okay, the scripture is uh, uh, clear about that. Also, Revelation 3, 5 is a specific promise from Jesus. I won't ever do that to you. Christian, he says there, he who overcomes, I will, I'll spell the word, never. What's never mean? Never. It'll never happen. And who's making this promise? Jesus. Does Jesus break his promises? No. He says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. But what do you teach? Oh, it could happen. And that's why you better become a vegetarian and worship on Saturdays and keep all the rest of the dietary laws and all these other rules that we have for you. Because And that's just it. The cults always have their rules, don't they? But that's really what they teach, right? He says, I will never. Now he says, listen, he who overcomes, I will never blot out his life. Well, maybe you're not an overcomer. Maybe that's you trying to overcome. That's not what, John defines who the overcomer is. John wrote Revelation. John also wrote 1 John. How many guys can figure that out without any help? That's what it's called, 1 John. Okay, anyway, and he defines the overcomer. He says, everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. So John, using the same word, his same writings, I think he knows what he means by it. He says, everybody who's a born-again Christian is automatically, therefore, a overcomer, right? Is what we see there, okay? So he who overcomes the Christian, the promise in Revelation 3, 5, I will never blot out your name from the book of life. So now you're calling Jesus a liar, right? It's basically uh, what they're doing. He will not erase your name. But that's what they hang over people's heads. And that's why they're scared to death. And that's what cults do. You better do this. You better not do that. And if you don't do this, and, I, and you'll never know. There's never any assurance. And you just got to keep riding that bike and knocking on that door and handing out these pamphlets and doing this and abstain from that. Don't do that. 
As we saw with the Colts, what is the, what is the unfortunate side effect of that? That's a horrid life. Suicide rates in Colts, whew, through the roof, drugs, alcohol, immorality. I mean, it's just... We even saw with the Jehovah's Witness, they have one of the highest rates of schizophrenia. Remember that? Secular study? Why? Because you just, ah! What an ex- Rather, what, what, what do we have? Praise God. And the reason why we do what we do is not because we have to. It's because we're compelled. Christ's love compels us. We're glad that he did it all. I want to serve him. Who wouldn't want to? With somebody who did that. But let's continue on the top of the next page. Whenever one of God's followers, they say, listen, commits a sin and also and asks forgiveness from God, that sin is what? We just read 1 John 1, 9. When we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all. What do they say? No, no. That sin is transferred into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And it remains there in the sanctuary until the investigative judgment is completed. What? At the end of time, all the sins of the righteous are transferred from the sanctuary onto the scapegoat. Is your blank there? And who's the scapegoat? Satan. Can you believe that? And yet you say, oh no, we're Christians. Why did that guy get so mad in my office, that Seventh-day Adventist, about three years ago now? And they wanted to rent our facilities. And he was nice. Oh, he was so nice. You guys, it's just great. And we just want to rent your facilities for our services. We're, we're growing. We just need some space. And, and who are you? Oh, we're Seventh-day Adventists. We're Christians like you. No, you're not. And as soon as I said no, he didn't smile anymore. Right? He got, are you kidding me? There's no way we're going to have a cult come in here and do that. No, but most people don't. He was shocked because you know what he said? He said, other churches don't have a problem. Now that's sad. What does that tell you? This, what I start at the beginning, this, this, this one, number 10 in our studies. I call these guys the sleeper cult. It's almost like they get a free pass. Because everybody, oh no, seventh day, oh yeah, Mormons, yeah, they're, oh, Jehovah's Witness, of course, yeah, everybody knows that. Seventh day Adventists, oh yeah, they're Christians. No, they're not, okay? But let's continue on. They say that Satan is the scapegoat there. Satan then suffers the, whoa. Satan then suffers the final punishment for his sins and all the sins of the righteous. Who's the savior then, according to seventh day Adventists? Is that twisted or what? Crazy. This lack of clear distinction between the forgiveness of sins and the blotting out of sins makes it impossible for anyone to know, even in the hour of your death, whether or not you're saved. You're just going to die, you go into this cosmic nap, and when you wake up, oh, where am I going? What a horrible existence, right? Moreover, the concept of the sins of all men are laid on Satan that assigns Satan an indispensable role in the blotting out of sin, thus nullifying the all-sufficiency of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But listen, according to Ellen G. White, we already saw a quote from the guy on the video, but she said, you have to believe this doctrine, this investigative judgment, it's all based on you, or you cannot be saved, is your blank there. This is at the core, right? Okay, at the core, right? Uh, those, she said, this is a quote from her, and this is her great controversy, which came from that two-hour vision at a funeral. She said, those who would share the benefits of the Savior's mediation should permit nothing to interfere with their duty to perfect holiness and the fear of God. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of the position in the Holy of Holies and work investigative judgment of their great high priest. Otherwise... It will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God's designs for them to fulfill. What's she basically saying? You've got to understand that you are in a heap of trouble, that you have to live a perfect life, you have to follow all these things that we lay out before you, and you better understand the dilemma that you're in because that becomes fear, becomes the motivation to somehow, hopefully, and you'll still never know because you're headed for a cosmic nap if you can get to heaven or not. That's what she's saying. Now again, why do we do what we do as Christians? Out of fear? No, we're not afraid because it's all done in Christ. Praise God. It's because I love him. Who wouldn't want to serve him? Who wouldn't want to do what he says to do? Because it's complete, not them. She says you've got to understand because that will motivate you to try to be perfect, but you can't, right? It's the dilemma, right? But she says this as she continues on. Uh, every individual has a soul to save or to lose. Who saves your soul? It's on your own shoulder, according to her, right? 
Uh, each has a case pending at the bar of God. All who have received uh, the light on these subjects are to bear testimony of the great truths which God has committed to them. The sanctuary in heaven is at the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. It is of the utmost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. No, on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, this is just the halfway point. The rest of it, you will never know. Because your sins are being stacked up in heaven. And i got to wait till I get to you in the judgment. And oh, by the way, it's going to take a while, so I'm take a nap. Crazy. But that's what they say. Okay. Now, by his death, he began the work. No, he completed it which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. That's a direct quote from her. Now, I can't get into it tonight because we're going to, Lord willing, we're going to finish up our study next week, okay? But we're going to take a look, part two of the salvation aspect, and we're going to take a look at the works that you're scared to death now. You got to keep all these lists, and every cult's got their list. Seventh-day Adventists got their list. But we're going to take a look at the works. And the big one that they say is the e, according to them, the easy defining mark. How do we know just right now, without getting too deep into a discussion with you, how do we know, guaranteed, that you're a Christian and you're not a Christian? Do you worship on Saturday? Do you worship on Sunday? We're going to take a look at that. We're going to take a look at the dietary laws because they say that you have to keep the law perfectly. Perfectly, which is impossible. And do you know what the Bible actually says? When you place yourself under the law, you're not blessed. The word that the Bible uses, you're cursed. And you know why you're cursed? It's not because the law is a curse. The law is holy and righteous. It's a curse because if you think that's how you get into heaven, you'll never get there. When you try to live by means of the law, self-righteousness, your own deeds, you're cursed because the penalty that comes with that is you're going to hell because you didn't trust in the gift of of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So we're going to get into that, Lord willing, next week as we finish that up, as well as how do you witness to these guys? And then, Lord willing, we're going to get into our next topic, as you can see there, Christian science with Mary Baker Eddy, and then after that, Scientology. Is that a hot topic or what? So we'll get into that uh, as well. Well, hi, this is Bill Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Now, before you answer that, let me uh, share with you a couple things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are not. And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. We don't deserve to go to heaven when we die. We deserve to go down. We deserve to go to hell. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this problem that we have, that we're separated from God not only now, but we're going to be separated from Him for all eternity in a place called hell. We, we, we don't even want to admit that. So once again, out of love, God gives us what's called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's x-ray, if you will, divine x-ray to, to get us to admit the problem that we have inside that's separating us from Him. Let, let, let's take a look at a few of those of God's divine x-ray. For instance, if you think that you're worthy on your own, you don't need a Savior, uh, you're going to get to heaven all by yourself, then let's take a look at God's test there. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments. The ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. Uh, how many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you just told one. But folks, we've all done that. That makes us a liar. The Ten Commandments, God's x-ray, showing us that we have sin that's separating us from Him. We're not holy and perfect like Him. The Fifth Commandment says this, you shall not steal. Don't ever once take anything without permission. How many of you have ever done that? Well, if we're not going to tell another lie, we, we should all admit that as well. Well, that makes us a thief now. The Bible says that God is so holy, uh, even His name is holy. And that's why the Ten Commandments says, You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And if we're honest again, folks, hey, a lot of us, how many of us have used the blessed name of Jesus Christ? The only name, the Bible says, under heaven, that men might be saved. We've now turned it into a common cuss word, if you can believe that. The Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says, hey, show, you want to show God you're so perfect, you have no sin? Then don't ever once commit adultery. And you might say, well, I, I've never done that. Really? Jesus lays the standard before us. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. Jesus said, if you ever looked with lust in your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's His holy standard. 
One more. The Bible says, okay, you think you're so good? Uh, then don't ever once commit murder. You shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I, at least I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible again says that the sin of hatred, wishing someone was uh, dead, is akin to the sin of murder. It's just, if you will, you pull the trigger in your heart. So, so, so how are you doing? That's just five out of ten of God's divine x-ray, by the way, uh, showing us the problem. How are you doing? Not if, but when your time comes, we're all going to stand before God. You will be forced to admit what He already knows. Hey, God, let me in. Let me in. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a, a blasphemer, an adulterer, and a murderer. And the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not headed to heaven in that state. You're headed to hell. But here's the good news. God said if we would just admit this, number one, then he could fix it. And it gets fixed only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be set free. And since we weren't there, and since it's a gift and we can't earn it, we have to receive that wonderful gift by faith. And the Bible says God will pardon us for our crimes, our sins, against Him. And you could actually see this analogy working uh, in the natural, in the normal world. Uh, we see this actually uh, in the courtroom. For instance, if a person is guilty and, and everybody knows they're guilty, they've committed a horrible crime and, and, and the, the sentence has passed, the judge has knocked down the gavel and says, hey, uh, you are going to jail, you are going to the death penalty for that crime. And, and we know that people, that happens all the time and they go to jail, but believe it or not, did you know there's a way for that person, even though they're guilty, to actually be set free from that crime? It's called a pardon. And the one in authority, the governor, has the part out of mercy, out of goodness, certainly nothing that that person did in jail. They can't undo the crime. It's too late. But out of mercy, the governor could go down there and grant that person in jail a full pardon for their crimes. And by receiving that pardon, the doors come open and they are set free and they're rescued from the death penalty. Folks, that's what God is doing every single day with us spiritually. He has allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the death penalty in our place. He's pardoned us, but a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it. And it's actually been on historical record that there have been people on death row who a governor has gone down out of mercy and extended to them a full pardon, but they've rejected it. And by their own doing, they went to the death penalty. Folks, don't make that same mistake for all eternity. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done. All of it. Even the sins we don't even know about. He wants to pardon you and forgive you, but you must receive that by faith today. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call upon His name, ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Please do that now. Please do that today because tomorrow may be too late. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. Again, thank you for joining us. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Our information and number and uh, things will uh, pop up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.